Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Ben Cleary. Ben is portfolio manager and founder of Tribeca Investment Partners Global Natural Resources Fund. This is a fund and a strategy that we've had previously on the podcast about a year and a half ago, and an investment strategy that has really struggled since that time. By way of background, the fund since inception returned 4.3% in its first year, November, December calendar year back in 2015, which is only a two month period. The following year of 2016, it returned 148%. The next year, 2017, it returned 22%. However, since July 2018, the fund has struggled and the return for 2018 was minus 13%. And up until the end of August, the calendar year 2019 was down 20%. So we thought it would make sense to get Ben on the, on the podcast to take a bit of a deep dive into understanding why there has been that drop in valuation and if investors should be concerned and what sort of action they should be taking and get a good understanding of that position to make informed decisions. Please I encourage you as always to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and understand that this podcast isn't designed nor is it an endorsement or a recommendation to invest in any one fund or investment. Please get advice before making any investments or making decisions. Uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot and enjoy this episode. Ben Cleary, welcome to Inside the Road. Thank you, David. Now, Ben, I've got you, uh, you're, you've joined me and you're, you're dialing in from uh, Hong Kong here. And thank you for doing that. We had uh, Craig Evans, uh, one of your partners and colleagues, speak to us uh, on the podcast uh, probably uh, 18 months ago, 12 months ago, regarding the Tribeca Global Natural Resources Fund, uh, a long, short strategy uh, investing in commodities around the world. Um, maybe you could just kick off by giving uh, our listeners just a, a quick reminder or update as to who Tribeca is and what the strategy specifically is that we're talking about today. Thanks, David. Look, Tribeca is um, a Sydney and Singapore-based fund manager. Um, we've been managing client capital for 22 years. The resources strategy that we're talking about today um, has been uh, managing client capital for the past six years. It's a long, short fund that's investing globally. Around 50% of the portfolios in North America, uh, 25% in Europe and 25% in, in Asia Pacific. And uh, Tribeca, the organisation, you want to maybe give our listeners a little colour around Tribeca, who you are and the objectives of it? Sure. So, look, Tribeca run uh, a bunch of different funds, um, managing a couple of billion dollars um, in, in total across some Australian equities uh, strategies, including micro cap, small cap and, and long short. Um, and then on the resources side, we have a long short fund uh, that we're talking about today, um, a credit fund, and then also some uh, smaller uh, medical uh, 
special purpose vehicles, including our uranium uh, fund. Mm. Now, Ben, uh, the the fund that we're talking about today, the Long Short um, Global Natural Resources Fund, uh, the ride in recent times has been a little bit bumpier, of course. Uh, 2015, <coughs> when you kicked off the publicly offered fund or the reporting I have, um, you know, it was up sort of 4% that first year to date for only a two-month period. So that was great performance. And then similarly in 2016, it was an absolutely stunning performance uh, with a gain of 148%. And then 2017, uh, the gains were, you know, very, very good at 22%. Uh, and then sort of 2018, starting in about July, um, you know, that the return of uh, minus 12 and then that that decline has continued uh, into the end of August so that you know there are in fact probably some investors top to tail if you had the timing at the absolute worst and you weren't one of those early in uh, that you could be sitting there at the moment with a a minus <laughs> 20 minus 30 percent uh, position on on current values do you maybe just want to talk about that period and, and what has led to that decline? Uh, absolutely. Um, and completely um, aware that, you know, Coda clients, you know, investing in the last 12 months have, you know, had an incredibly poor start uh, with respect to the Tribeca Resources Fund. Um, I would say that, you know, we are you know, right there beside you in terms of alignment, myself and Craig and the rest of the team, you know, did invest several millions, you know, ourselves last July um, at, a, at around the same time that the drawdown started. Uh, it's, it has been a, you know, it's been a really frustrating um, past 12 months. Um, look, there, there's, there's a bunch of different um, reasons that, you know, I could cite, you know, but clearly there's some correlation between the beginning of, of the trade war um, between US and, and, and China um, last year with, with the start of our uh, drawdown. Um, you know, you could, you could also talk about this you know, ongoing um, obsession the market, you know, seemingly has with, you know, end of cycle uh, mentality. Um, you know these fears of of impending uh, global recession, or or you know at at, at least a you know significant growth slowdown, and that impact um, on on cyclical stocks uh, and and the weight of money, you know moving moving out of of, of cyclicals and and into more defensive stocks. So you know we we have throughout that period been positioned. Um, you know, around 50 to 60% net long, um, predominantly in three big buckets being, uh, first, first bucket is base metals. Uh, we've, we've maintained around a 20% long position. Within that 20%, around 12% of that is, is copper. Um, equities, around 6 to 7% is nickel. And a couple of percent being in, in zinc. Uh, the second big bucket is is energy. So uh, we've had around 25-30% of, of the portfolio net long energy, and and continue to do so. That that split up 
um, by engineering and services businesses are around 10% of, of that 25, uh, around 10% is in, in shipping um, stocks, particularly uh, uh, crude oil, tanker uh, shipping equities and around 5 to 10% in in um, in oil producers themselves, both domestically in Australia and and, and particularly in North America, um, the third big bucket of, of, of exposure has been in uranium, uh, which is around a 15% uh, net long position for us. So, if I look back on the last 12 months, there hasn't really been a lot of you know portfolio uh, thematic shift. You know, we've maintained those those overweights in those three spaces, you know, we've got very strong fundamental views that all of those commodities are, uh, are, are very tight, um, you know, to, to running deficits, um, you know, despite global slowdowns or trade war related consumption issues, we still see, you know, very tight commodities. But Particularly, the base metals and, and energy have have really come under uh, you know fire from from the broader market. You know, there's been significant moves downwards. You know, despite the strong fundamentals, and that's really, I guess, anecdotally, uh, been about pricing in these these slowdowns to to growth and consumption that you know we still haven't seen. If I'm looking back on the last 12 months. We've seen quarterly, you know, consumption of of oil, for example, um, you know, remaining, you know, in positive territory, you know, despite, you know, from the fourth quarter last year through uh, second quarter of, of, of this year, um, you know, some major concerns around consumption growth that you know, proved to be, you know, untrue, and and consumptions remain strong, and at the same time, supply issues have. Have continued to to you know, kick in. So the commodities themselves seem tight, but the equities, uh, you know, have been very soft, and and that's really driven a lot of our underperformance over the last twelve months. Is just having exposure, you know, to to you know commodity sub buckets that that really, you know, have uh, have come under fire. Ben, would you like to, if you could please, maybe just delve into a little bit of detail on some of those fundamental <laughs> themes and perhaps give an example where you believe the fundamentals of an investment position are very, very compelling, but the market has moved against you for whatever reason? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I think, you know, copper has definitely been one of the commodities that you know we've been you know very constructive on that particularly in the last 12 months both you know the commodity price itself and and equities you know have have been weak if i if i start at the the, the commodity level um you know we see the copper market being in deficit um there's been a range of supply issues um, across most of the major mines so far this year that's seeing supply Come in below uh, expectations. At the same time, consumption, you know, remains strong. You know, obviously, this is a, a commodity that is 50% consumed um, in China. Chinese consumption for copper is is tracking 
in, in the low single digit positive uh, uh, growth, um, which is more than enough to, to create a deficit market. Um, inventories across all the major exchanges are uh, you know, very low and um, you know, we, we do see you know, a, a, a copper price that can move you know, higher over the next 12 months from, from current levels, but it has really been a, a commodity that whenever these trade tensions have, have you know, manifested themselves or it's in, in tweets or, or retaliatory um, uh, between the, 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 the US and, 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 and Chinese in, in the press, it, it just seems to be a commodity that's been a go-to um, to whether it's to, to short sell or, or to long sell. And, and, and we've seen the commodity derate this year um, and, and in particular equities um, you know, derate uh, off, off the back of lower commodity prices, you know, to, to levels where particularly some of the stocks that we own, we just see such amazing value. You just don't see assets, you know, like some of the assets we own, you know, trade at these levels for long if history is any, any guide. And, and so, you know, our biggest holdings are companies like, you know, Freeport, McMoran, it's, it's, the largest copper company in the world. It's it's got three of 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 the lowest, longest life, uh, lowest cost, longest life uh, mines on the planet. You know, at, at current levels, it's it's trading on a enterprise value per pound of copper uh, reserve below the GFC levels. Um, you know, below 2014 levels, um, and these are, as I say, the you know, very high quality assets um, that in in this company's case, you know, EBITDA is going to double over the next two years organically with a with a flat copper price thanks to you know production growth from one of its key uh, mines. So you know these are you know these sorts of opportunities you know do not come up uh, often. You know, over longer periods of time, um, and you know, we, we 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 you know, hence you know, our conviction remains you know higher to to you know the the these high quality copper stocks that we own. You know, other other stocks you know we own uh, uh, would include something like uh, Lundin Mining in in Canada, uh, probably the the strongest balance sheet of. Of any of the major copper producers globally, again with a very strong uh, production growth pipeline, trading 20-30% below uh, medium mid-cycle um, type multiples. Other companies would uh, include even Oz Minerals in Australia. We think, you know, very high quality company. Um, it's about to bring on um, production from from its uh, new. New project Carapatina, um, again, you know, trading on undemanding multiples versus you know a, a mid-cycle average 20, 30 percent below. So, uh, you know, across uh, you know our, our copper holdings, it, it, you know, there is this common theme that you know stocks are trading, you know, at a level you know well below uh, mid-cycle multiple. In fact, below 2008 type distressed environments where Leverage at at the company level was significantly higher. Um, you know, in Freeport's case, for example, their their leverage in 
in 2008 or 2014 was approximately five times their current balance sheet leverage. So companies are in you know, financially much better shape. Um, we think the commodity price uh, you know, can can move higher, but irrespective of a higher commodity price, I think you know, stocks uh, represent tremendous value. And Ben, what's driving the fundamental demand out of China for copper? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, look, I, I, I guess the consumption of copper comes comes down to a couple of you know, major buckets. The first is the state grid. Um, state grid you know, re- represents around eight percent of 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 total uh, consumption in in China. Um, they uh, have three to five year forward looking plans and they've been reasonably consistent in in um, their consumption and their rollout plans. That's obviously uh, you know copper wire um, mainly uh, in terms of their consumption. Um, so that's that's been you know growing at anywhere from sort of five to to ten percent depending on the year. Um, over the last decade, and we expect that sort of consumption trend to, to continue. Um, you know, the, the second major bucket is is just you know general you know property um, related uh, construction, and you know again you know this the base of of, of property construction uh, in, in in China is obviously. You know, grown significantly over the last decade, but you know, even over a base that's that's increased, you know, almost threefold over that time, we we still see growth in in the range of sort of two to five percent from from the from the property uh, market, and and then you know, your, your fixed asset uh, investment um, bucket, uh, including infrastructure, um, you know, again has been you know, reasonably strong. Um, in 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 the sort of one to four percent you know consu- consumption growth in recent years and with recent stimulus announced in China that you know we we expect will will be maintained into year end um, you know we, we we expect that that you know should continue to support you know reasonably strong consumption uh, in in uh, into the uh, end of the year for for copper. And what are some of the Ben? What are what are some of the other major themes you've got running through? I think you might have a position in uranium, uh, where similarly you're seeing uh, distressed prices. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, look, uranium again has been frustrating in the from a fundamental perspective. We've seen 25% of the the world's uranium supply put on care and maintenance over the last 12 months. Um, you know, this uh, was uh, further extended recently from Kazataprom, which is the world's largest uh, uranium producer that extended cuts by a further 12 months to the end of 2021. Uh, so, so not only have you know, the cuts been made, but they've, they've now been sustained and, and increased. Uh, which you know, we would suggest is only going to see inventory, which as we see global inventory at the moment being you know below medium term levels. So that inventory is only going to 
to decrease further. Um, on, on the consumption side, China continue uh, to increase their, their nuclear power generation program. Um, they've announced 10 new reactors this year. Uh, that's on a, on a global uh, base of, of around approximately 300 reactors. So you're talking about a 3% global consumption growth uh, at, at, at the time where you're getting up to 25% of, of supply removed from, from the market. So, you know, very healthy fundamentals. And, and if, if I sort of look at other commodities and, and you know, that have had much smaller uh, supply removed from the market, whether it's oil, you know, even yesterday with the Saudi attacks, uh, you know, you, you've had a 10-15% uh, immediate jump in oil prices off of, you know, what is approximately 5% of global supply being affected on a very short-term basis. Obviously, iron ore at the start of the year with the Vale um, disaster, there was, you know, approximately 4% of, of the world's uh, iron ore uh, out of the market. You know, again, it was a reasonably short time, three to three to six months, and, and the price uh, almost doubled um, of, of iron ore. Um, similarly, in 2016, where you had Glencore take out 4% of the zinc market and put it on care and maintenance, the zinc price actually almost tripled um, in the next 12 months. So 25% in, in the uranium market is you know is absolutely a big number and you know we think at some point that's got to translate to much higher prices there's been this ongoing uncertainty in the in the uranium market in the last uh, 18 months around the section 232 policy in, in the US where similar to the steel and and uh, aluminium industries where uh, Trump mandated a, a a specific amount of steel to be consumed, uh, uh, produced, uh, be produced in, in the US that was consumed in the US. Um, a similar sort of policy uh, plan was voted on uh, a couple of months ago um, where Trump actually um, said no to putting a, 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 a mandated uh, limit of, of uh, imported uranium, which we saw as uh, you know, effectively being the status quo. Um, there was a small caveat that he's going to continue to work uh, on, on with a working group on, on um, further uh, regulations for the US nuclear industry, and that seemingly left some doubt in, in particularly the, the nuclear generators uh, themselves, who are the buyers of, of, of uranium, uh, which is seemingly you know, enough doubt for them to uh, stop longer-term contracting or, or to start again uh, longer-term contracting. So the uranium market, whilst fundamentals look you know fantastic, there's, there's still seemingly just this you know small amount of, of doubt in in uh, the reactors' uh, mindset, which is uh, stopping them from from contracting, you know, longer term. And when that starts, which you know we we think you know should be, you know, very soon, um, certainly before the end of the year, um, you know, we see much higher prices from here. The current prices of, of uranium is around twenty five dollars a pound. 
um, you know, over the last 10 years, we've seen prices up to, you know, $100, $125 a pound. Um, these are these are very depressed levels in the uranium market, and we think prices, you know, can go significantly higher from here. Though. And and Ben, has that U.S. policy had more effect on the uranium market than, for instance, the Japanese disaster? Uh, look, the the Japanese disaster, Japan is uh, was prior to. Fukushima around 10% of, of the world's uranium market. So, uh, you know, overnight, uh, effectively, you know, 10% of global consumption uh, came out. And, and it, more to the point, I, I guess, Japan was sitting on, on around 10 years of, of inventory, which they had been selling in the open market, um, you know, ever since. You know, the Japanese inventory is, is, is now down to you know, well below uh, one year of, of of supply if they were to turn back on all of their reactors. They've currently turned back on around one third of, of the reactors they, they turned off and there are plans for another third to uh, come back online over the, the next 12 months, which again we see as a positive to the general market. Um, the, the, the US policy, you know, was different in that it was just creating doubt um, in in the consumer's mind um, whether or not they could purchase uh, uh, U.S. or foreign uh, produced uh, uranium. Um, as I say, it, the policy was reasonably clear, or the, the findings were reasonably clear in our view that U.S. Uh, nuclear generators can absolutely continue to to um, buy supply uh, or import supply, um, but there, there's seemingly just this ongoing doubt um, in, in the market that you know Trump might still uh, implement some sort of policy uh, that would require generators to buy X percent uh, US owned uh, or US, US produced supply that you know, is stopping them from, from contracting. You know, as I say, generally inventory, you know, in, in the US, in Europe, um, and to a lesser degree Asia, um, at the, at the generation level is, is well below, uh, medium term inventory numbers. So we do see a need for the, for the reactors to, to start contracting, uh, both short and, and, and long term, you know, imminently. Uh, so, you know, two different issues, but you know, have been headwinds uh, on on the market. But you know, I think now are actually you know turning into tailwinds with you know, Japan actually turning reactors back on and and the US you know providing you know more more color uh, and and comfort to 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 generators to start buying. And Ben, your valuations or the investment fundamentals you're able to enter into positions through people like Boss Resources and Yellow Cake, are they similarly as compelling as you're outlining, outlining in the copper market? Look, they're actually a lot different. Uh, you know, the, the, the copper market, you know, you're talking about stocks that are generating, you know, lots of free cash flow um, at current prices, have multiple um, you know, different mines. Uh, in terms of market capitalization, uh, you know, much bigger companies. Um, 
the copper market, you know, is significantly bigger than, than uranium. Uranium's, you know, this is much more of a, a niche market um, in terms of the commodity. So uh, in terms of our exposure in, in uranium, um, it really is quite hard to get single stock exposure where we'd be much more comfortable owning, owning producers of the commodity. Um, our, our exposure, as you alluded to, is actually mainly through yellow cake, which is effectively a spot price uh, related uh, security. Um, it, it has a uh, option agreement with Kazataprom, which, as I say, is the, the largest producer of, of, of uranium globally. They bought uh, a couple of hundred million dollars of uh, uranium from Kazataprom last year at around $22 dollars a pound um, and they're storing that uranium in a warehouse in, in Canada. Um, they've got uh, an ongoing option uh, with, with Kazataprom to buy approximately $100 million per year of uranium uh, at a discount to, to the prevailing spot price. So that is a, a, a really a clean way for us to, to get exposure to a rising spot price. But it doesn't give us operating leverage, which you know generally we'd, we'd much prefer to have. The second company you mentioned, you know, Boss Resources, is you know a, a small company. It's it's barely a hundred you know million dollar uh, market cap company, um, but it is quite uh, you know a, a good example of of the uranium industry, and that you know it's actually only one of Four permitted uh, mines in in Australia. It's it's been in production before. It, it owns the Honeywell project in in South Australia, which um, you know to us is a you know high quality, uh, low cost project that um, you know needs prices in the 30s um, you know to, to generate uh, you know an IRR of you know close to 20 percent. Um, but unlike most of the other uh, projects that are either on care and maintenance or greenfield out there in, in, in the uranium space that you know, need prices closer to $50, we think that you know, this is a project that you know, will, will deliver fantastic returns, a, a commodity price that you know, we see as being highly possible, i.e. mid $30 a pound, um, uh, you know, versus, as I say, you know, other projects needing much, much higher um, prices. So, you know, it is hard to get exposure um, to, to companies in in the uranium space. We've we've also entered into some options agreements ourselves with uh, a couple of major uh, producers um, to to get that leverage um, to, to to higher prices. So I guess our thesis is that. Uranium prices can get to mid 30s to 40 dollars a pound, and that's where you will see a supply response from people like Zataprom. Um, so we're we're generally avoiding companies that that need higher higher prices than that in in the portfolio. Mm. Now, Ben, uh, I'm conscious of your time constraints, uh, so maybe sort of wrapping this up. What, in your view, or can you see any likely catalyst to change? Um, the recent declines you've experienced, can you see any catalyst that's going to allow you to turn that around? 
look, it's a, yeah, it's it's the question, isn't it? Um, I, I would sort of point to the last couple of weeks where you know we've we've seen you know a very clear rotation out of out of growth into you know valuey uh, stocks, which in, in include resources, and there really hasn't been a a macroeconomic reason, you know, for that, for that uh, movement. In that, you know, I think that the market just got very comfortable pricing in, you know, no growth, no, no inflation, you know, yields uh, closer to zero, uh, you know, despite generally, um, you know, reasonable uh, economic uh, outlooks in in North America, Europe, and China. Now you're starting to see some stimulus in. In China, you know, economic data starting to tick, you know, off, 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 you know, reasonably low levels higher in Europe um, and and US, you know, remaining reasonably strong. That you've seen that that rotation occur. Um, um, these rotations, you know, we've seen some false uh, false rotations in the last twelve months, where you know you've had. One, two, three, five days of the rotation, and then that that uh, that defensive positioning come back. But you know, if if this rotation was to maintain itself for you know three, six, twelve months, then you know our portfolio is you know going to be significantly higher than you know what it is today because the. From a valuation standpoint, you know, as I say, these whether it's copper, whether it's energy stocks, um, these stocks are at very depressed valuations. If, if you look at it from a from a full cycle point of view, versus the broader market is looking quite expensive, um, certainly from a from a full cycle perspective. So, the resources uh, indexes stocks. Sub subsectors have got a lot of room to move higher from a valuation standpoint. I think you are going to need, you know, broader rotation, um, you know, to 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 underpin, you know, moves moves higher. Um, you know, I think the the case is certainly, you know, there for for that rotation to to continue. Um, you know, fundamentals you know, generally remain reasonably supportive. Um, of, of the industry, and from a positioning point of view, you know we, we, we've seen record shorts ever in in the copper uh, market in in the last couple of months. The oil and gas uh, commodities have have remained um, you know heavily shorted. If I look at the XOP, which is the uh, energy producers index in the US, it's trading at a record discount ever. Uh, versus the commodity price itself, um, you know. So positioning, as well, you know, to, to me seems very supportive of a of a move higher because we we are looking at you know all time record shorts in a, in a in a lot of cases. So you know, valuation fundamentals and positioning all seem to be lining up for for a, you know move significantly higher in 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 my view. And Ben, I can, is it right that I can confirm that you're you're in fact long oil given what's going on? Recently, uh, in Saudi Arabia, I think you might have names like uh, Mermaid Marine uh, and Wally Parsons and Sundance within the portfolio um, that may benefit from an increase in that oil price. Yeah, look, we're we're certainly net long um, 
both oil producers and and oil service companies. Uh, I think I said at the the beginning we've been running around the twenty to thirty percent net long um, across uh, the energy complex, and that at the moment is is still around twenty five percent. So we're we're certainly benefiting the last couple of days from from higher oil prices. Uh, you know, again, these these stocks have have you know, really been tapped up in the last. 12 months, particularly North American and European producers, uh, but also the, the energy services companies. Um, uh, I think you know, we've, we've alluded to in, in the past that you know, we've got around 10% of the, the fund in, in the sh- oil crude tanker shippers, for example. You know, these, to us, uh, you know, are compelling uh, buy and you know, a great example of deep value. The, the basket of stocks we own, companies like Euronav and DHT, International Seaways, these these are the highest quality shipping companies um, globally in our view. They've all got solid management trading at anywhere from sort of 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.7 uh, book value. Um, in, in the case of Euronav, for example, just a couple of weeks ago, they sold the oldest boat in their fleet at 1.2 times book value versus the rest of their fleet trading at uh, 0.7 um, versus uh, uh, through the cycle um, book value range up to two and a half times uh, is is generally where these stocks peak. Um, all of them are in actually rude financial health. They're they're all buying back shares. They're all all starting to over earn. You know, we, we got we started buying these companies 12 months ago because we thought shipping rates. Would would uh, would would increase into uh, the IMO 2020 implementation on January uh, one of next year. Um, our thesis was seemingly right on on day rates that have moved from you know, sort of twenty five thousand dollars a day to close to fifty thousand dollars a day at the moment. Um, you know, however, these these companies have again sort of been caught in that same. Downdraft that you know whether it's oil producers or or copper uh, producers, the, the shipping sector has generally traded lower this year because of concerns around global growth, despite very strong underlying fundamentals. So, you know, we we think over the next sort of six to twelve months, this this sector can move materially higher. Um, you know, similar to Fortescue, where you know Andrew Forrest owns thirty three percent of the stock and is. Shareholders are aligned with 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 uh, you know him to to see higher dividends. The the shipping sector is actually very similar in that most of these major shipping companies are, uh, have one major shareholder, family shareholder that you know again is very incentivized to pay themselves dividends and have actually you know are all on the public record saying any over earning uh, will result in in higher dividends. So. Look, it's 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 certainly um, you know nice to see higher uh, oil prices, and um, and it's certainly benefiting the the portfolio short term. Ben, uh, thank you very much for your time. It's uh, always, I think, a lot easier to talk about the portfolio and returns when they've uh, been on a very good run. Not so easy when uh, you've experienced the last twelve eighteen months. Uh, where, where that's worked against you. But as often is the case in wealth management, uh, as advisors, we spend lots of our time 
talking to clients and managing a lot of the behavioural trends that see people look to flee or run or uh, you know move to cash when in fact uh, some of these uh, declines represent great opportunities to buy excellent assets at uh, severely discounted prices. So thank you for your, your time today. I really appreciate that and thanks for the explanation in such detail. <clears throat> no, th thanks, David. And um, please, if any any of your investors um, you know, would like to follow up directly, we're, we're always around to chat. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.